Hello, and welcome to Cover to Credits, the bi-weekly podcast where we discuss books and their movie adaptations. I'm Ian George. And I'm Adina Hilton. In this episode, we'll be discussing The Last Unicorn. When the last eagle flies over the last crumbling mountain, when the last lion roars, something at the last dusty fountain in the shadow of the forest (laughs) though she may be old and worn something else something else of the last unicorn Nailed it. Yeah, that's the whole song. First take, no problem. (laughs) Anyway, uh, The Last Unicorn was written by Peter S. Beagle and published in 1968. And the film was directed by Rank and Bass. uh, Rank and Bass. Rank and Bass. Yeah. mm. Rankin and Bass. Rank and O. Yeah. Whoops. <laughs> Editing my notes <laughs> and came out in 1982. I didn't watch any of those uh, Christmas movies as a kid. Yes. Yeah, so Rankin Bass is the same people. They're two directors um, who made those creepy Christmas cartoons, the ones that are like the, the stop, stop motion yeah. with the puppets and everything. Which I grew up with them, so I have a special place in my heart for them. But even as <laughs> I did someone not. looking back with nostalgia, I can recognize how horrifying they are. <laughs> I did not. So I see like Mr. Heat Miser and I'm like, are they in hell? I'm like, what's happening? <laughs> <laughs> Basically. <laughs> uh, so this is a patron request. Yes. So our lovely patron Maggie Murakami requested this episode um, we love all our patrons, and they do have uh, priority in uh, giving us suggestions. So yeah. we always make sure we do patron-requested episodes. This was really exciting for us to do, and um, we're really happy to do a request from a patron. Yeah. Um, Maggie really liked this movie because she grew up on it and then ended up reading the book later on. And she actually shared with us that she had the opportunity to go to like an author event where she um, heard the author speak and got him to sign her poster because actually the author also wrote the screenplay for the movie. Yeah, so, and you can tell because they're, like, incredibly similar. Oh, yeah, they're basically the same. Yeah, like, dialogue, plotting, like, a few things are removed, but pretty much these two go And this kind of goes with what we say sometimes, where the film is almost like the second... Or third, however many draft, you know what I mean, yeah. of the book. It's like a little bit more edited for length. It's a little more, you know, I would say not quite polished, but. Well, yeah, especially in this case, because it's coming from the author again. Yeah. You know, I think a lot of times the author's probably like, it's perfect the first time. I want to change as little as possible. When a lot of times another perspective adapting it for a screenplay can yeah. maybe they have that outside perspective of pinpointing like, "Mm, maybe that could be left out. Maybe this shouldn't have been included. It's a rare author that writes a screenplay that can just like cut their own stuff. You know what I mean? Yeah. And I mean, I think this movie has a very unique feel because it was so directly adapted from the book in terms of like the pacing and the plot and kind of like the three act structure is hard to kind of like 
pinpoint in this one. Yeah. And I do think it's because it's pulled so straight from the book. Yeah. So, I agree. yeah, a lot of a lot of things we'll uh, get into. Yeah. And uh, it's also worth mentioning. This is the second time we're actually recording this episode. <laughs> so we recorded the whole episode and it was fine. But we were just kind of like not on our best game. And that might seem crazy to you because it seems crazy to us. But we really want to make sure our podcast episodes are like, you know, high quality. Yeah. And we're talking about things in, you know, a concise way, but also, you know, talking about what makes the movie and the books great and what we don't like. You know, I just felt like we needed a second chance. Yeah. It, well, and not to mention, I think we've both been surprised by we've been we've already announced it's going to be the last unicorn is the next episode on social media. And I think we've both been shocked at how much positive uh, reaction there's been to it. Yeah. I mean, like, I know it's it's uh, beloved by a lot of people, but given that neither of us has ever, like, grew up watching this. No, this is our first watch. <laughs> yeah, it was. So I think, like, we're just now seeing, like, how many people really love uh, this movie and slash book. So. so, yeah, we just wanted to make sure that we were doing the best possible episode for this book and movie combo. So this is take two. Take two. It's going to be amazing. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but with all that said, let's start with uh, the, the unicorn, last unicorn. The last one. Yes. Except at the beginning, she doesn't know that yet. Mm hmm. I kind of love that she doesn't have a name, too. I do, too. Because it's just like she's the unicorn. Like, yeah. she doesn't need a name. She's like beyond names. And I think the book does a really interesting job of like creating this mythos surrounding the unicorn. Like, yeah. in this particular one, how she's been like, and this is throughout the book, too, mm -hmm. that she's like healed sickly kings and like fought off like dangerous beasts and uh, kind of like also it's funny, like, Acknowledging that unicorns are kind of vain creatures yes. that like are really in love with themselves. They love to like look into pools of water <laughs> to like see their reflection and they're like, yes. Yeah. <laughs> she lives in this forest all alone. And it's interesting because of the unicorn's magic. The whole forest is like an eternal spring, which is yeah. interesting. And, and she's lived there for a long time by herself. Yeah. And we kind of understand this because at the very beginning of the story there's two hunters passing through the forest mm -hmm. who kind of like acknowledge that there's some kind of magical presence in the forest and the one believes it's a unicorn even though they're thought to be extinct yeah he's like there's a magical quality here and it won't be good for hunting because all the animals will be like kind of magical too so we should just move on yeah but this basically and the unicorn's listening kind of gives her this first seed of an idea that there might not be other unicorns anymore and now that she thinks about it, she's like, yeah, I guess I haven't seen any of the others in a long time. But like unicorns are super isolated creatures and they don't like living with each other. Yeah. And they also very rarely mate as well. So she's like, they have to be somewhere. People just don't know about them. But then she starts thinking about it more and more and she starts getting worried. Yeah. So she kind of uh, it's it's a little bit different in both versions. I think in the yeah. book right at this point, she decides like to leave her forest, which is really her safe haven where she yeah. like likes to live and everything and kind of trekking out into the unknown mm -hmm. uh, to find out if she is truly the last unicorn. Yeah. Uh, in the movie and in the book, we get this weird ass scene. Yeah. <laughs> with a butterfly. And I feel like this is something that. If someone else wrote the adaptation, they would have probably been like, what is this? Cut the butterfly out of this. We don't need the butterfly in the movie. But the butterfly is in the movie. 
it's just as weird as it is in the book. And also, in case you haven't read the book, like yeah. it's literally the same in the book. And also just as long. Like nothing oh was God, even like so long trimmed down about it. It's like a fun idea and I probably liked it more in the book, but the idea is that, like butterflies for some reason like only uh, can speak in lyrics and poetry that they've heard. Yeah. And so they're only just like quoting things and they like can kind of communicate a little bit like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, but ultimately they're mostly just like blabbering nonsense. They just sound like they're super high. <laughs> <laughs> and it's like, okay, that's fun. But then the movie just like goes it's like on. It's five minutes. Yeah. It's so long of the butterfly just like quoting random songs and you're like, please stop. Like anything happen, like anything else happen, please. Yeah. And and it's even a while before the unicorn like explains like, oh, you're just a dumb butterfly who can only quote things. Because yeah. like, up until this point, you'd probably be like, I don't. <laughs> what is going on with this I butterfly? Am <laughs> missing something? <Yeah>. Like, <laughs> <laughs> So, but she's trying to like uh, interrogate the butterfly if she is the last unicorn. And at first he's just like not responding because he's an idiot. Yeah. <laughs> but then finally. He's high as fuck. Yeah. <laughs> he's high. <laughs> but then eventually he understands like he communicates i know you're a unicorn and then kind of gives this cryptic clue about the red bull driving like the rest of the unicorns away yeah and i forget if he mentions haggard or if that's not until later but creates this like further mystery about what's going on with all the unicorns and this is the first word the unicorn has had of the rest of her kind Um, We forgot to mention the opening sequence in the movie, which is when you hear uh, that beautiful song that we just sang for you earlier. (laughs) Uh, All the music was written by Jimmy Webb and uh, performed by the band America. Yeah. Do you think they hired the band America because they sang a song about a horse. I and wonder. Like, a, unicorn a horse with is, no name. Yes. A unicorn is kind of like a horse with no name. It's just a horse with a horn and no name. <laughs> you know? <laughs> exactly. The unicorn would take offense at that, though. She was very pissed at everyone who was calling her a horse. That's true. Although it's worth mentioning in the movie that uh, we do find out that uh, humans can't tell she's a unicorn. They think she's just a horse. Yeah, in the book, too. Oh, in the book, too. But I was going to say in the movie, though, like... It's just her without a horn. Yeah. And so it's like, and it's not super obvious, like at first viewing, like, oh, her horn's gone. And that's like the extent of it. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Because in the book, there's more kind of like mythology created around the unicorn that like she's much more like incomprehensible to like look at than just a horse with a horn. Yeah. She's like so much more and she's all these elements and is like so majestic and that like a horse doesn't like. It's it's undercutting what she is. Yeah. But in the movie, it's just like, oh, and now there's no horn. <laughs> <laughs> and she's magically a horse. Yeah. <laughs> so she's traveling and it's kind of unclear in the book how in the and the movie, how long and how far you just get the sense that it's like very, very far. It could be years. Yeah. It kind of is implied almost as such that yeah. it's been years. Um. So she's just sleeping by herself one night on the side of the road mm-hmm. like you do. And then who comes out of the night? But the evil Mommy Fortuna. <laughs> Mommy Fortuna. Which is the worst name I have ever heard. <laughs> like, why not just go with Mother Fortuna? Yeah. Like, why Mommy? <laughs> it is <laughs> uncomfortable, to say the least. Just, it is. <laughs> uh, but she is the leader. 
she's like a witch. Yeah. And she's the leader of the Midnight Carnival. And when she comes upon the unicorn, she can actually see her for what she is. And she knows, like, oh, shit, like, I can't fuck this up. Like, I can get a real unicorn. Yeah. And so they capture her on Mm -hmm. the spot. And in the book, they actually have to build the cage around the unicorn while she sleeps. Yeah. Which is interesting. But Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, so now the unicorn has been captured, is caged, and is now a part of Mommy Fortuna's... Midnight Carnival. Midnight Carnival. And the Midnight Carnival is like all these wonders from mythology. And they have like the Minotaur, they have um, the serpent from Norse mythology, Midgard. Or not, that's not right. Sure. No, I forget what it's called. <laughs> There's a lot that yeah. there were some that I had like never heard of or recognized. Yeah. But essentially the gist is that they are all not what they appear to be. They're like, for example, the Minotaur might be uh like a an old lion. Yeah. Just like this really decrepit, sad animal. Mm-hmm. Or like, you know, they're all these real things that Mommy Fortuna is creating an illusion with. Yes. And tricking people into thinking they are what they are. But. There are only two real things in the carnival. The unicorn and a horrifying harpy, which is like (laughs) some vulture like creature that is only bent on revenge and destruction. Yeah. And it's real freaky. Like the unicorn is terrified Mm -hmm. by this creature. It was very disturbing to read about in the book a little bit because Mm -hmm. it was just like. It was just like waiting. Yeah. And like knew it would be free soon and it would just like kill everything in its path. And it's very clear that like Mommy Fortuna, like she's kind of in over her head with like she kind of caught the harpy by chance. Yeah. And it's like taking most of her power to keep it contained. Mm -hmm. And like everyone knows it's only a matter of time until the harpy escapes and will just like eat her and everyone and just destroy everything. Yeah, but she kind of like accepts that. She's kind of like a little suicidal. She's like, yeah, yeah, it's going to kill me one day. I'm excited for that. I've accepted (laughs) it and I look forward to it. Yeah, it's weird. It's also odd because the unicorn. See, this is what like is very strange about the unicorn is that no one could see her. So Mommy Fortuna kind of had to create cast a spell on her. So people saw her as a unicorn. Yeah. But it's not really what she actually looks like. No. It's kind of like a A cheap version, a cheap version. Yeah. Of a unicorn, which begs the question of like, why didn't she just do this with a horse? Yeah. Like, what does she gain from actually Actually having the real thing, having a having a real unicorn? It's just for her pride, I think. Yeah, I think so, too. But it's funny because in the movie, (laughs) they just give the unicorn another horn. That's like kind of shimmery. So it looks like a a spell. Yeah. So she has like two horns. And she's now a duo corn, I believe. A duo corn. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) But it's just very odd because when it happened, I was like, why? What is that thing on her? Is that another horn? But it looks different. And then you realize kind of what's happening. We meet Schmendrick the magician at this time. He's also with the carnival. To do like these cheap tricks. And he's very confusing at the beginning. At least in the book, I was kind of confused. Me too. Because he's like, oh, I'm just like a cheap pretend magician. And then he comes to talk to the unicorn. He's like, just kidding. I'm a real magician. And I've just been in like hiding this time, this past like few years. I'll help you escape. Mm-hmm. But then it was like, oh, wait, I'm actually kind of not a magician. I'm actually really shitty at yeah, it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I'm like, wait, what's what's happening? Yeah. Because like. 
you you get the idea he does you know tricks for people who come to see the carnival and you yeah. kind of get from reading it that they're just like sleight of hand tricks yeah and so you're like okay so he's just like you know pulling like these card tricks and stuff uh but then you're like no he's a real magician but but then he's like a bad magician yeah like and, he's still a magician but bad and it's kind of unclear sometimes like whether he's using real magic or fake magic because even in the movie, there are times when he, like, creates illusions that seem like they're real magic. Yeah. But we also understand that he, the real, the, the quote-unquote real magic is something that he can't grasp. Yeah. And kind of ha- comes to him at different points in the story. But you're like, where's the line yeah. here? Yeah. It's very unclear. This made me kind of not like him at first. Yeah. Because I just felt like he was lying the whole time. Mm. Like he's like, oh, I'm a real magician. And then he like was like, oh, I'm I'm kind of bad. And I'm like, what? <laughs> what is going on with this character? And he seemed like super arrogant at times. Yeah. And I think once you find out his backstory... Um, you find out, you have more sympathy for him. You kind of find out later that he was an apprentice to this great real magician. Nikos. Nikos. And Schmendrick was so bad at magic that Nikos was like, wow, you're so bad at this that you have to be like really great. (laughs) (laughs) You must be like some kind of prophesized, like great magician because, and I love, this is kind of one example of, how kind of uh, aware the story is yeah. of a lot of fairy tale tropes because this would be kind of like a trope in a fairy tale like oh someone who was so bad and they sucked and they were terrible but then like they eventually become revealed the true magic the greatest magic of yes. it all yes and exactly it, and to give one of the characters in the story like they're a step ahead of that. They like know, okay, I know what's happening here. Yeah. And so Nikos is actually like, I'm going to put this curse, this enchantment on you that you don't grow old because it's going to take you like a long ass time to figure out your like deal. (laughs) (laughs) And then once you figure it out and you get your like shit together, you'll start to age again. But it's been some time since then. We don't know how long, but he's just been like, he just like, (laughs) hasn't been aging this whole time. There's a comment about his like, what like his ageless birth, face? His birthdayless face. Birthdayless face, <laughs> which I loved as a <laughs> as a comment. Can we talk real quick here about the writing of the story? Yeah, because I this was something that like captured me really early on with this book specifically is uh, how how well I think how well it's written because it's very funny first of all, and I don't think that is a, I don't think many people would assume that. Maybe no. going into this. No. Like when I looked at the cover of the book version that you're reading, Adina. Yeah. It's got a very like traditional fairy tale painterly cover. Mm-hmm. And very fantasy. Very fantasy. And like looking at that book, I would not think for a moment it's funny at all. No. But like it's really funny at points. It is. And it it really reminds me of two books. Mm-hmm. It reminds me of The Princess Bride. Mm, yeah, that's a good example. And it reminds me of Stardust. Yeah, and that's where as soon as I started reading this, like within the first page or two, I was like this makes me think of Neil Gaiman a lot. Yeah, and I wonder, I don't have any proof of this, but I wonder if Neil Gaiman was influenced by this book. I can't imagine that he hasn't read it at this point. Like yeah. I don't know if he he may not have like when he was starting. Mm-hmm. Uh but Something about, like, yeah, it's just, the writing style, too, is so interesting. There's so many similes and comparisons 
in the story. Yeah. Um, that I've like just never like read before. And there's something really refreshing about that. Like someone's eyes were described like as hard as hailstones mm-hmm. or as cold as hailstones and uh, something being the color of the desert. Mm-hmm. And there's just so many things like that throughout this book that just engaged me so much because I felt like I'd never come across those before. Yeah. And the writing is very, it's sincere, but it's also like aware of itself. Yeah. So like it manages to, to have a sincere fantasy story, but to also poke fun at those fairy tale fantasy tropes, like we were talking about and to kind of be almost like an analysis on like what a story should be like. Mm -hmm. Many characters throughout the book are like, Say things like, oh, well, that can't happen yet because we're like, that's not how the story goes or that's not how fairy tales go. And so like we have to go, we have to do this thing. We have to go here because we're part of this larger story now. And so kind of being that self-aware, like this is a story and this is like how the story has to go, but you can still be kind of self-aware and to let your readers know that that's part, part of the story as well. There's points in the story where I like this approach and points where I think it's a little bit too on the nose. The balance is difficult. Yeah. I I think when it's kind of parodying fairy tales, when it's self-acknowledging it, there's a part coming up we'll talk about. I think that's when it is at its most effective when it's kind of like a wink, wink, nudge, nudge kind of thing about fairy tales. It's like commentating on them and also like giving into them. Yeah. Later on in the story, though, it kind of is very self-referential about fairy tales in a much more serious way that I don't think is as successful where I'm like, okay, I, I don't know. It just wasn't as uh, interesting to me. Yeah. And there's just like a lot of like humor and kind of like, I'm trying to think of a good word, just like warmth and like mm-hmm. funniness in the writing style, which does really remind me of Neil Gaiman a lot. Yeah. Kind of that like side, like chuckle, like <laughs> you, you know what I'm saying? Yeah. Here, you know? Yeah. And, uh, it's just kind of all in good fun. So I love uh-huh. those parts of the book. Yeah. And I mean that writing, even in parts where the plot is a little more boring or dragging, like the writing style kept me fairly engaged throughout. Yeah. Which I think is a real testament to, uh, just like the prose and the writing style of the author. I agree. Yeah. So back to the story, the unicorn trapped and then Schmendrick's like, I'll get you out. And then he's like, wait, no, I'm bad at this. I'm bad at magic. Let me just get the key. I have a key. (laughs) (laughs) So he lets her out and then she frees every other animal in the Midnight Carnival, including the harpy, which can we just take a minute and talk about the movie Harpy? (laughs) You mean the harpy with uh, three exposed boobs? Three breasts. I'm like, who? Why? Okay, first of all, why do we have to see any breasts? And they're like super like dangly and like weird. And there's three of them. And there's three of them. I just don't get it. Anyway, let's move on. She <laughs> frees the harpy and then the harpy, the harpy's like, free me. I'll kill you. Free me. I'll kill you. Do it. And the unicorn's like, okay, and lets her out. Um, and the harpy seems like she's going to attack the unicorn, but then she dives straight towards mommy Fortuna. Yeah. I mean, they do kind of spar a little bit, the harpy and the unicorn, but then mommy Fortuna comes out and 
she's just like crazy at this point. Yeah, she's, especially in the movie. Yeah, because she's just like, you couldn't have done it without me. Like, because I had the two of you, you got freed yourself. So, yeah. like, it's all because of me. And then the harpy's she's like. She's just like cackling until the end, basically. Yeah, the harpy <laughs> just lunges at her and starts like tearing her apart. Tearing her to shreds, probably. And uh, Schmendrick wants to run. And the unicorn says, no, we have to walk. Mm-hmm. She says, when you, like, in the presence of, like, an immortal, yeah. walk. Because if you run, it'll get their attention. It'll attract them. Yeah. There's a lot of interesting, like, world building kind of small things in this story like yeah. that that I really enjoy. Mm-hmm. One was about um, people hunting unicorns. Yeah. And the unicorn was like, everyone knows that you have to make it, like, really interesting. <laughs> so the unicorn will be like, oh, what's this? Yeah, or the unicorn <laughs> will be so drawn to the hunt that, like... That makes it engaging for them. Otherwise, like the unicorn will just like fuck off. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so now Schmendrick and the unicorn kind of travel together. Schmendrick asks the unicorn as his favor because the unicorn grants him a favor since he freed her. Yeah. And he asks to travel with her and she's like, oh, fine. <laughs> but I think Schmendrick can tell that his destiny lies with the unicorn. Yeah. And that's going to maybe be what sets him free of this curse. Yeah, and he's just, like, drawn to her and, like, her presence and everything, which is why he freed her. So so they start traveling together. Yes. And next comes one of my favorite parts in the book and yeah. the movie. Might be my all-time favorite part. Not sure. <laughs> so there's a brief moment where they stop at a town. Schmendrick is, like, chatting up the mayor, doing yeah. tricks. And then a group of bandits come and just take Schmendrick. Yeah. They just like grab him and run off. In the movie, they just have, they're just walking on the road and Schmendrick gets kidnapped. They cut the whole town thing. Which makes perfect sense. Yeah. And then Schmendrick gets taken to their forest dwelling where we quickly realize that this is like a group of men who are kind of like pretending to be Robin Hood. They're Robin Hood wannabes, except it's Captain Cully mm-hmm. and his group of men. And they Captain Cully is very delusional because he's excited to see Schmendrick kind of welcomes him, even though they kidnapped him. And they're like, oh, you're here. Like, welcome. Have a taco. <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> And he's like, oh, let me tell you all about my exploits. Like, you know, we rob from the rich and give to the poor and we've like saved so many people and all that stuff. And his group of uh, merry men are basically like, we don't do that. We actually like <laughs> steal from the poor people. like, <laughs> And we pay off the wealthy people so they don't imprison us. Yeah. And so it's clear that this is like a charade where Captain Cully thinks of himself as this dashing like rogue yeah. outlaw, but really they're just a group of like poor people living in the <laughs> woods, like stealing from others. Yeah. I love kind of the slow realization, at least in the book. Yeah. Where you're like, oh, this is very Robin Hood like. And then like it kind of winks and nudges at that. So you're like, okay, that's definitely what's happening. Yeah. And then at one point when they're singing songs about themselves, I think it's Molly. Yeah. It's like, can we sing like a real song like about Robin Hood? And he's like, don't mention that name. (laughs) (laughs) And he's like, Robin Hood doesn't exist. And we do. And he's like, we're the real thing. He's like very like defensive about it. Yeah. But it's just a very funny scene. It feels like it could be right out of Monty Python. Exactly. Yeah. And it's just super entertaining and funny. And then Schmendrick, for some reason, decides now is the time to 
uh, disperse some magic. Some real magic. He feels it coursing through his veins and he's just like, just aim it wherever. And just like <laughs> poops it out. And then um, his magic takes the form of this mirage of Robin Hood, his merry men, and Marion walking through the woods. Yeah. And it's really interesting because in the movie, it's very clear that it's a mirage. Like, they actually go through the fire. Yeah. So you can see that they're not real. In the book, it's not clear. It looks like it might be real. And the whole band of Captain Cully's men basically deserts the camp and is like, wait, Robin Hood, (laughs) let me join your group. And they all leave. (laughs) And I couldn't quite tell if, like, this was a tactic by Schmendrick. I know to escape, which is it's smart if it is. But he just like sits there laughing in both versions. Yeah. And I'm like, what? Dude, get out. Like, this is your chance. Like, I don't know what you're doing, but he's just sits there and laughing, sits there laughing until uh, Captain Cully like apprehends him. him, And he was like, hey, you're a dick. (laughs) (laughs) Let's tie you to a tree until we figure out what to do with you. Oh, man. I I remember in this part in the movie because this is an incident uh, a situation where it's extremely close to the book yeah but it's things are so rapid in the movie that i remember thinking like if i didn't read the book i'd have like no clue what the fuck is going on yeah you're like suddenly there's just like holographic robin hood and marion like going through the camp yeah because i don't even think it's clear at that point in the movie that they're Robin Hood like impersonators. Yeah. Because you're only there with them for like two minutes before Schmendrick does the Robin Hood thing. Yeah. And then I, I don't know. Everything's just so rapid that I don't feel like there is probably enough time to actually absorb what's happening. Exactly. Once again, it's tough to say because we having read, the, read book. the book, we knew, but I had a feeling like I, I think if I hadn't, I'd be totally lost at I this point. I think the same. Yeah, yeah, I agree with you. So Schmendrick gets tied to this tree and in the book, it's just a simple like, oh, he and I think it's because he's muttering some spells trying to free himself. It's unclear. Yeah. And he accidentally makes the tree fall in love with him and the tree's like, oh, I love you. I love you. And then the unicorn frees him and then they leave. But in the movie, we have a very disturbing animation of a tree with, again, very heavy breasts. Uh-huh. And she's just like smothering Smendrick in her boobs. Between her titties. And it's so gross and weird. I'm like, why would you... What is this? This is for children. Like, why? There's a really interesting thing I read about how this movie... I, I read that this movie is compared a lot of times to like Watership Down yeah. or Plague Dogs in terms of animated movies that have like definite dark tones to them. Yeah. And what's interesting is... This movie, at least, I don't know about the others, came out before the PG-13 rating Uh. was created. And people were like, it's unclear whether this would have been a PG-13 or a PG movie by today's standards or if it would have been PG-13. I mean, there's some swearing in it. There's some swearing. There's some, I mean, like, the harpy's boobs are just, like, out. I know. You know, the tree boobs are a little less, like... Like, there's no nipples There's no nipples on the tree boobs. Uh, (laughs) So, you know, nips or no nips, I don't know where the uh, the ratings board would fall with that. Exactly. <laughs> uh, but it's just a very weird scene. It is. And, and the tree, like, calls the unicorn a hussy. 
Oh, I totally missed that. Yeah, it's weird. Oh, yeah, I do remember. Because she gets, like, really jealous. jealous. Yeah. And then, like, as quickly as it happens, it's over. And I'm like... Yeah, it's, like, not addressed at all. Could we not have cut this? Like, I thought for sure, watching this movie, I was like, okay, they're probably going to cut the tree part. Because that's what I would do. And that makes sense. And then I just saw them tying him to the tree. And I'm like... already had breasts. It already had boobs on it. And I'm like, oh, my God. (laughs) (laughs) What a scene. Uh, so the unicorn helps him escape, and then before they fully escape, they run into Molly Grew. Again. Yeah, and she was she's kind of like the stand-in for Marion in this yes. knockoff group. It's she's kind of with Captain Cully, and we're sort of led to believe that she kind of ran off with him when she was younger, and now she's older in her late thirties, and she completely regrets it. But um, she sees the unicorn and actually recognizes the unicorn for what she is, and is in awe, but is also angry. And I think this is an interesting nod to some tropes in stories that like only the young virgin, virginal or like pure yeah. single uh, maidens who are young can go on these type of adventures. So I kind of like that an older woman gets a little bit of a spotlight in this. Yeah, story. I, I liked it, too. And I like I like Molly as a character, like her qualities. Yeah. But it is worth noting that I think this story is good in terms of. Pretty much every character has a very specific, well-defined want or need that you're able to like, okay, Schmendrick wants to be a real magician. The unicorn wants to find out what happened to the rest of her, uh, her, her people, and then characters later on as well. But Molly is just kind of like there for the ride. Yeah. And I am very, I'm very disappointed by that. I think they could have done more with her. I agree. Because she just kind of is like, I'm here to do... Whatever you need me to do, I'm around. Yeah. And she also kind of like mellows out a lot as the story goes. Yeah. She's very feisty at first. Yeah. Like how she yells at the unicorn and she's just kind of like pissed off and like. She's a lot of witty comebacks. She does. And I really like that about her because she's just been like stuck in the woods with like all these dudes for yeah. like a decade. <laughs> and she's like, I've had enough. <laughs> but yeah, so I love those qualities. But like as the story goes, like they kind of peter out a lot which i found disappointing yeah i think uh, that's kind of common at least in this story for some other things as well yeah we'll we'll, we'll certainly get into it but let's talk about since we've we're on the topic of the tree boobs let's talk about the animation mm-hmm. in this movie so super interestingly this was directed by rankin bass but they actually outsourced the animation to a japanese company called topcraft And this company did all the actual animating. And this company later went bankrupt. And then it was purchased by uh, the company that would later be known as Studio Ghibli. Yeah. So Miyazaki actually ended up working with a lot of the animators who were once at Topcraft and who animated this movie and bringing them on to Studio Ghibli. And this was crazy because we also found out that before Topcraft went bankrupt, yeah. they were the animators for Nausicaa of the Valley of the Wind, which yeah. we only saw like two weeks ago. I know. And it still holds up. It's so I beautiful. It's so great. I, yeah, That movie's fantastic. If you're listening to this and you haven't seen it, please watch it. Yeah. But the quality <laughs> of animation between these two. It's like night and day. It is. It's so shocking what the difference is. I was honestly shocked to find out that Nausicaa came out in like 84, 85. I forget when exactly. Cause it just seems like, yeah, it seems older, but 
um, to compare it to this, which was like 82. Yeah. I'm like, they're so different in their styles and in the quality as well. Mm -hmm. So, well, and we're lucky we, uh, went to school with and are friends with like a lot of animators who yeah. are now out now out in California and working in the industry. And we talked to our friend Milo who works for DreamWorks animation. Mm-hmm. And we just kind of asked him like, what do you know about this movie, the animation of it? And like, can you share anything with us about it? And he told us all of the top craft history and stuff relating yeah. to it. But the thing that he told us that I think is the most interesting was he's like, this is clearly a case of, like the poor animation just being due to a a lack of budget and money. He was, and I think that makes sense given that studio did Nausicaa. Yeah. Like clearly they're capable. Oh yeah. Of fantastic animation. And he was like, I think this is just obviously like they didn't have the budget for the animation. And typically when you don't have a lot of budget, it's the actual animation that a lot of times uh, takes the biggest hit. Yeah, and he mentioned specifically that, like, because The Last Unicorn has some really beautiful visuals, like the background shots, and even, like, the character designs are very detailed and really beautiful. And Milo was saying that that's something that is common for low-budget films, that more attention will be paid to those backgrounds Mm -hmm. and to the character designs, but, like, less to the actual movement of the characters. And I noticed this a lot, especially with the unicorn. (laughs) The unicorn, yeah, in a scene early on, I I forget what exactly she's hearing or saying. Yeah. But she just keeps moving her head. Like, in different ways. mm, 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 mm. Like, just back and forth, yeah, it's like, weird. needlessly. Yeah. And I'm like, what? Stop. Stop moving your head. Stop it. <laughs> yeah, the movement of characters, even the speaking, is not quite right. Yeah, and that's another thing, is this movie actually has a really solid voice cast. It does. Jeff Bridges is in it. Mia Farrow. Mia F- Alan Arkin. Christopher Lee. Yeah, and I think this is still a controversial thing today, in terms of, like, voice acting, because... And and sometimes I still notice this problem when they hire a well-known actor to voice a character in an animated movie. Yeah. And sometimes it just comes across as being underwhelming in terms of, like, I think actors typically are used to, like, delivering lines in a more, like, realistic, kind of softer way. Yeah. And I think sometimes when you pair that with animation... So now you're looking at this thing at, at animation, which is typically like vibrant and bright and moving and colorful. And then you have like a character like kind of delivering their lines. In I a mean, quiet Jeff Bridges way. specifically. So yeah, Jeff Bridges. He was I just kind of monotone. He was. Um, Even Mia Farrow as a unicorn wasn't always yeah. interesting. And- I kind of flat and alan arkin like i liked his delivery but sometimes it's just like the oomph behind it isn't there yeah and so i think a lot of times like i even kind of feel this way about like with the lego movie yeah and chris pratt voicing the main character Mm -hmm. like he does a lot of the jokes really well but other times it looks at like softer points i think the voice just kind of like gets too low and trails off and yeah and I think if you watch like... I mean, voice acting is completely different from physical acting. Oh, yeah. And I don't think a lot of actors know that. 
Or yeah. a lot of people understand that you need different types of actors for those things. And I'm sure some actors can do both, but it's definitely a different skill. I For sure. And I mean, if you watch like any cartoons, like we're big fans of Steven Universe. Yeah. The voice acting in that, like you can tell like they're voice actors. Like they, even in like the sadder, softer lines, mm-hmm. like they, there's a delivery with them that yeah there's like a strength behind the voice exactly yeah and so and i get it with animated movies like they want to have a cast that you can like put on the poster like jeff bridges alan arkin to draw people in yeah and i think those actors a lot of times see it as like a quick payday yeah like i go to a room for one day i read some lines and i'm out Mm -hmm. grab my money i'm out yeah uh so but it, it is kind of this problem i think where a lot of times it doesn't make for the best movie i agree so i also wanted to mention i read this really interesting article about how a lot of people felt like this movie was really scary yeah because a lot of people like our age now or older watched this when they were children ian and i never saw it but we're kind of the outliers in this situation a lot of people have a lot of nostalgia tied to this movie but um i was reading this article and the the author was just talking about how he was like terrified of yeah. the harpy because <laughs> yeah. it was like it's so dark, like kind of unexpectedly. And especially the scene where like sh- the harpy comes down on Mommy Fortuna. It's like very intense, like kind of out of nowhere in this fun fantasy story. Yeah. And then you have like the Red Bull, which is just like I think it's more unsettling than yeah. outright terrifying because it doesn't ever speak. And you yeah. don't know why it does what it does. It just kind of like comes for the unicorn and you never know why. And so I think that like unsettling menace was like very disturbing. You know what? And I feel like maybe another reason that adds to like the uneasiness of this story is that because of like its magical qualities, a lot of times you kind of don't know why things are happening. Yeah. And I think there's kind of an uneasiness to that. Like, it's kind of unclear, like, I mean, it's implied that the tree turns alive because of his magic, but it's yeah. also kind of, like, very subtle. Can this happen in this world? Like, we don't know. Yeah, or, like, the Red Bull, we never get an explanation as to, like, its nature. What it is, where it came from. Yeah, who it answers to. Like, there's a lot of things about this story that are just kind of, like, unexplained. Yeah. And I can see that also being, like, unsettling for a child to an extent. Definitely. Speaking of the Red Bull, this is where we kind of find out more about what it is. And it's kind of, we find out it's tied to King Haggard, who is supposedly this wicked king in like a bordering kingdom. And when Molly Grew joins the group, she's like, I'm going to just come with you guys, whatever. They're like, we're going to King Haggard's castle to try to find out what happened in the unicorns. So now we get to a portion of the story that's only in the book. Yeah, which is interesting, but I can see why they cut it just for time. They go to this town called Hagsgate, and it's right near King Haggard's castle. And it's clearly like a really weird town. And Schmendrick is kind of like oblivious to this. And Molly's like, something is weird in this town. Yeah. It's super prosperous. And the whole rest of the land is like a barren wasteland. Yeah. And then they notice that like there are no children in this town either. Mm-hmm. And they come to realize like there's this type of prophecy hanging over it. So essentially they wine and dine Schmendrick and they explained to him that when King Haggard had his castle built uh, by this witch, 
he refused to pay her after. Yeah. And she got really pissed and she cursed the castle. And the town. And and the town. And she kind of like did this dual curse where with the town she's like, one day the, the sea will come and take the castle away. Yeah. And it, it will be because of someone from this town. Yeah. And once and do it. the castle falls, your town will also fall too. So... It's funny because like they're super prosperous and doing great and love and life. But it the fact that it's all going to come crashing to an end is like hanging over their head. Yeah. And they can't enjoy anything no. <laughs> because of that. And like to prevent this from coming true, none of them have kids. Yes. So that no one can have can one day bring about the downfall of the castle. But of course they find out that there was like this baby and they left it outside in the cold to die, but then King Haggard picked it up. And which, now it's his ward, Prince Lear. Which just goes to show you, if you want a baby dead, you just got to do it yourself. I know. Don't leave it for the wolves, because the wolves will, like, nurse it. And then it'll, like, become the founder of Rome. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> so they're like, shit. That's definitely like the prophesized baby. Yeah. Uh, is the prince. So they want Sh- uh, Schmendrick to go and kill it. Yeah. And they pay him. And he's like, uh, yeah, sure, I'll do it. And yeah. then as soon as they leave, he's like, I'm not going to fucking do it. He's like, I'm taking half their money. <laughs> but there's like weird, confusing scenes that follow where it seems like they're trying to get their money back and they're chasing them. I don't know. This part of the book I thought was like very confusing. Yeah, they're like pursued, but it's not clear why. Like, did they change their mind? Yeah. I don't know. But w- during this time, suddenly the fabled Red Bull shows up. Yeah. And the whole time you're like, what is this Red Bull? Is it just like a manifestation of the sun? That was kind of like one of my ideas. Maybe, yeah. But then it's just an actual like bowl. In the movie, it's kind of like, it looks like it's kind of misty, but it's still like physical. Yeah, it's very interesting. In in the movie, it's just kind of like fire. Yeah. Like actual like flaming it's, it's, it's a fiery bull. And so it attacks them like immediately. Yeah. And starts chasing the unicorn. And the unicorn is like really scared and starts to run away. And you can tell that the red bull is like hurting her towards the castle. Yeah. She can't outrun it. It's yeah. kind of like flanking her and getting her turned around towards the castle. And at this <laughs> point, Molly is begging Schmendrick to save her. Yeah. Use your magic. Do anything. And he's do like, literally anything. And he's like, I don't know if I can. She's like, literally do anything, anything to save her. And he's like, okay. And here it's it like, goes. For the second time, he's able to like summon magic. Channel the magic. And he creates a spell on the unicorn and turns her into a human girl yeah. that the bull has no interest in now. Yeah. And so it leaves. Mm-hmm. But of course, once this happens, Molly and the unicorn, who is no longer a unicorn, are, are both like, what the fuck did you do? Why did you do this? <laughs> and he's like, you he's, said do anything. He's like, I saved her. Yeah. Like, uh, and he's also kind of like super proud of himself for yeah. having done this. So he's kind of like boasting too. Yeah. But he's also like, what are you talking about? Like, you told me to do anything. And there I was s- like nothing else to do. She was going to like be killed or driven away. And it's very annoying because like it's the same in both versions. 
both Molly and the unicorn are being just super dramatic about it. Yeah. The unicorn is like, I wish you would have let the Red Bull take me. I would me. rather be dead. <laughs> <laughs> than the, uh, like being trapped in a, like a, 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 a girl's body. A flesh prison. <laughs> <laughs> and everyone just gets on Schmendrick's shit. Yeah. And I got real mad about it. I know. I did too. I found Schmendrick annoying off and on through this story but I mean he literally was just trying to save her and did like the first thing that he could think of and use the magic as best as he could so and he was also like I he's like I didn't even choose for her to be a girl he's like that was just like the magic yeah like the magic chose and he's like at least this way he's like we can go to the castle and at least kind of like get ourselves in there and maybe figure out what's going on and find out where the other unicorns are. He's like, which is better than if you turned into like a rhinoceros or something. Yeah. <laughs> He's like, at least we can like work with this. Exactly. And so that's what they do. They go to the castle and the castle is oddly like staffed by like three guards only. Yeah. <laughs> and it's Prince Lear and King Haggard and they let them stay in the castle. King Haggard is like super suspicious of everyone immediately. Yeah. But um, they basically go there and are like, let's figure out what's going on. And then they just don't. <laughs> Six months later. Like, that would have been a great title card. It's like, <laughs> we have to get to the bottom of this. And just like. Six months, Six months later. later. Yeah. <laughs> but Schmendrick is now the court magician. Yeah. He's trying his best to like entertain Haggard, which <laughs> would be like super funny to watch because like I have no idea. Oh my Haggard God. is just so curmudgeon I'm like, well, Haggard, he's not only curmudgeon he's like suffering from a severe case of ennui where he just like <laughs> nothing brings him joy in the world and he's like everything is meaningless. And it's really interesting because he's such a weird character. Yeah. Like he talks about how he's like tried everything once and none of it like made him happy. So he just has gotten rid of everything. Yeah. In it, his life. If it doesn't, he like Marie Kondoed his castle <laughs> like to the extreme. But there's He's nothing like, in the castle. Nothing sparked joy. He's like, <laughs> get rid of everything. <laughs> and he even admits that like he picked up the baby, baby yeah. Lear, because he was like, wow, I'm miserable, but I've never had a baby. So maybe I won't be miserable if I have a baby. And then he brings it home and then he's like, too late. <laughs> he's like, meh. He's like, two stars. Yeah, would <laughs> not like, recommend, would not but recommend. now I'm stuck with it. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, so while this is all going on and as time has passed, uh, the unicorn now being called Lady Amalthea. Lady Amalthea is just like super bummed. Not yeah. talking to anyone, just being super depressed. Mm -hmm. And King Lear is just like Prince Lear. I'm sorry, Prince Lear <laughs> is just like infatuated with her. Yeah, he's like, I must have her. She's the most beautiful thing he's ever seen. And he's doing all he can to <laughs> woo her. And he's trying to like slay dragons and break curses and do a lot of like princely and hero things to gain her attention. But she doesn't really care about that. No, it's he like keeps bringing her like dragon heads and yeah. like all these things that are just like so absurd and ridiculous that it's like it's, it's a really funny part of the book. Yeah. Uh, but she's just not into any of it. And it's so funny because Prince Lear is just like whining to Molly about yeah, it. He's like, why doesn't she love me? And he's like, could you read my poetry and tell me what you think? And she's like, Ugh, fine, like help me peel potatoes. <laughs> Finally, though, he talks to Amalthea and she's like, I have these weird dreams about being like trapped in this weird carnival. And he's like, I'll sing you a song. 
And in the movie, it turns into like this duet that they sing together. And at the end, they fall in love. In the book, he sings this like kind of like raunchy song to her. And she's like, yeah, that was good. And then they're in love. And I'm like, what? What? She's like, yeah, that hit the spot. Yeah. But that's like, whatever happens. That's like in modern day, he like sang blurred lines to her. And yeah. she's like, oh, yeah. Whichever way you slice it, they end up in love. And I have huge problems with this. Yeah, so it's just like her total like personality has been erased by this point. Yeah, she for- she forgets who she was. She doesn't remember that she's a unicorn. Mm-hmm. And I mean, we might as well talk about it now, I guess. There's yeah. a trope in film specifically around sci-fi and fantasy, and it's called Born Sexy Yesterday. Yeah, and it's it um, comes from this um, video essayist on YouTube called Pop Culture Detective. And um, we've talked about his uh, video essays before in our podcast, but he kind of criticizes film and portrayals of like feminism and masculinity in film. And this is an interesting trope where you have uh, the basically the mind of a child in the body of a full-grown woman. Yeah, and so this is usually done through some type, like almost always done through some kind of like sci-fi fantasy element. So yeah. like, uh, a really good example is like the fifth element. Yeah. Uh, Tron. Tron. Yeah. Tron legacy. Mm-hmm. Yeah. There's just like a lot of where literally either she's like, she's been created Yeah, and she kind of has this like, wow, I don't know anything like kind of this like, I need a man innocence. to show me. Yeah. But yeah. <laughs> the guy's greatest attribute is just that he's boring and normal. And he's like, I know about the world. I can tell you about it. And she's yeah. like, wow, I love you. Cause I don't know anything. Exactly. And so throughout this story, like, especially at the beginning, we were kind of like, is this a born sexy yesterday? Yeah. Because at first, yeah, she literally gets turned into like this attractive, beautiful young woman yeah. who's like naked, right? Like immediately. Oh yeah, yeah. But at the beginning, she still has the mind of the unicorn, like yeah. this immortal, like consciousness. Consciousness. So I'm like, okay, I don't think it's quite there yet. Even though like people are like falling in love with her immediately, I'm like, she's still not immature in a mental way. Yeah, but then it quickly goes into she is forgetting her entire unicorn past. Mm-hmm. And now she's just like, oh, I'm just like this cute, sexy lady. Like, I just need a man. Yeah. <laughs> you had a, a passage that. Oh, yeah. I just wanted to read because it's like, I, I think we're supposed to believe that the love between Lear and Amalthea is like good. Yeah. And pure. But then again, there are passages where I'm like, is this the author being self-aware or is this like not at all? So I just wanted to read a bit about the two of them falling in love. So he told her everything he knew and what he thought about all of it and happily invented a life and opinions for her, which she helped him to do by listening, nor was she deceiving him for she truly remembered nothing before the castle and him. She began and ended with Prince Lear except for the dreams. And they soon faded as he had said they would. So just that idea of like she began and ended with him is weird. And I'm like, is the author pointing this out as bad or good? And it's really not clear. No, because the author does so many interesting things with like twisting ideas and like tropes and fairy tale concepts that like, I want to say that it's self-aware and, but I, I, it doesn't feel that way. It's not explained enough to be self-aware yeah if it is if he did intend that it's not like made fun of enough and this is kind of like 
During this latter half of the story, the story gets much more serious. Yeah, and we lose the unicorn's perspective. Yeah. We've been following her the entire story, and now it's more from Schmendrick's perspective and kind of about him. Which is interesting because, like, I do feel like this is Schmendrick's story to an extent. Yeah. And because he does go through the biggest arc. I agree. And this is kind of an interesting thing with, like, um, like storytelling theory where, like, the main character sometimes in a story doesn't change. Yeah. Uh, which isn't necessarily true for the last unicorn. The no, unicorn, she definitely changes. She does change. But uh, she sometimes like the actual growth in the story is through a side character. Yeah. And how like they're affected by the main character. Mm-hmm. And I almost feel like even though the unicorn does change, it's really the change in Schmendrick. Yeah. That is kind of the most unique and interesting and kind of a typical arc. It's just weird that when she turns into a lady, suddenly she becomes dumb. Yeah. And we were saying it's it's frustrating because there was no need to erase her memories because no. you easily could have worked this idea in to the with her just Still simply being a girl yeah. where, you know, maybe she gets changed into a girl and she's really like upset and depressed about it, which makes sense. Yeah. And then maybe she at a certain point is like, you know what? Maybe I should just accept this as my life now. I have this like handsome prince like trying to win my heart. But so like you easily could have had this character arc without her forgetting anything. She could have just been like, I'm going to yield to this like life I have now. Yeah. Instead of like, oh, I forget everything. So now I'm, I'm going to do this because I have no agency in my own story. Yeah. I think if she would have remembered her past life, because she ends up wanting to stay human and wanting to have a life with Lear. And I think her choice would be much more impactful if she could remember her past. Absolutely. Where it is now, she's like, I literally don't remember anything else. And so I don't want to go back, obviously. So it just, it feels less interesting. Yeah. it just For re- lack of a better word. No, absolutely. It just removes all, any anything interesting or whatever that's been built up around that character yeah. is just kind of thrown out the window to an extent. Uh, there is also a scene with the unicorn and king haggard yeah in the on the tower where he confronts her and he's basically like i know you're a unicorn and amalthy is like i have literally no idea what you're talking about and this <laughs> kind of cements to us that she has no memories of her past no and he literally reveals to her he's like oh yeah look out to the ocean see that all the unicorns are just trapped in the waves and he's like yeah it's like the only thing that brings me joy is to see them imprisoned in the sea so i just come out here and like look at them and i smile my like creepy old smile to myself <laughs> and yeah that's 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 it for me i thought i thought one of the most interesting things was when uh, amalthea looks into the sea she can't see anything yeah and it's unclear whether haggard can see what she can't whether he can see the unicorns or whether he's just looking at the ocean and it's just the knowledge that, that they're, they're there. in there that mm-hmm. like brings him happiness. It's a twisted old fuck. <laughs> <laughs> he is. He's very weird, but a very interesting character. I just want to do one small shout out to all of the crazy musical numbers in this movie. Yes. One of them is is really long and is just Lady Omalthea singing about what it's like being a woman now. 
And she goes like on and on for way too long. And then another one is a duet between her and Prince Lear. Yeah. And it's fine. But yeah, it's it's really funny. There's like a lot of music at the beginning of this movie. Yeah. And then none for quite a while. And then a lot at the end. Yeah. It's weirdly balanced. I feel like sometimes movie musicals are like that a lot. No, I especially movies that like aren't really like considering themselves musicals. Yeah. Kind of do that. Uh Let's talk about real quick, though, like the most iconic song. Yes. The one that we graced your ears with earlier. Oh, yes. The I'm Last sure you Unicorn. All that. <laughs> it's funny because I actually heard this song before, honestly, even being aware of the movie entirely because yeah. a band we both like called Ninja Sex Party uh, did a cover of it. Yeah. And I was kind of like, what a weird song. Like, what is this from? Like, I have no idea. <laughs> but I'm like, oh, it's the theme song for the movie, The Last Unicorn. Yeah. But let's do like quick micro <laughs> analysis analysis of the song <laughs> as adaptation. Yes. And whether it is or not, because the lyrics are very interesting. Yeah. Because so, it's like saying like the last eagle and the last lion over yeah. the last mountain. So it's implying that it's like the end of the world. Yeah, they will stare unbelieving at the last unicorn. Yeah. And then um, when the first breath of winter through the flowers is icing and you look to the north and the pale moon <laughs> is rising and it seems like all is dying and would leave the world to mourn in the distance, hear the laughter of the last unicorn. Can the unicorn laugh? And why is it laughing? Yeah. It's like, <laughs> everything's dying, but not me. <laughs> yeah. It's all just like very, I definitely feel Vaguely like. Vaguely inspiring. I definitely feel like the prompt for this songwriting was like, write the theme song for the last unicorn. It's called the last unicorn. And that's all you have. That's all you have to work with. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. He's like, all right, I guess I can. <laughs> uh, and even the last lyrics, because there's only like three verses. Yeah. Uh, something about the moon. The future has passed without something desperate warning. I'm reading this off my <laughs> computer screen. Uh, yeah, I mean, it's all just like vague imagery. And then, uh, oh, I'm the last unicorn. And then it's like, I'm alive. <laughs> Cool, 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 good, yeah. awesome. I'm glad, happy for you. It's just so funny that this is like it has nothing to do with the plot. No, nothing to do with the plot, the characters, the themes. No, it's just like it's an immortal unicorn. It's the last one, and it, she's laughing, in and the she's distance. laughing, and just living her life as maybe the world ends. Yeah, it's not clear. Not clear. <laughs> <laughs> and that ends this micro episode yes. of cover two credits. <laughs> Song analysis. <laughs> Song analysis edition. <laughs> so we're at the end here and a lot of things kind of happen pretty quickly. They kind of, once they find out that Haggard's keeping the unicorns in the waves, then they're like, we have to face the Red Bull. Not clear what their plan is for facing the Red Bull other no. than just getting there. And they make a skeleton talk and the skeleton is very uncooperative because <laughs> they're trying to find the passage to get to the Red Bull. This scene was like with the skeleton was super goofy. And it like was. one of the funniest parts of the movie. Definitely. Because it was both like being awkward and intentionally funny. Yeah. Uh, there's a great line I love in the book where they're like freaking out because the skeleton's just being a huge dick. Yeah. He's like, oh, I can fuck with you now. <laughs> it's been so long since I've could since I've been able to fuck with anyone. Yeah. Uh, and they're like, we don't have any time. And he's like, I have time. The skull replied reflectively. 
it's really not so good to have time. Rush, scramble, desperation, this missed, that left behind, those others too big to fit into such a small space. That's the way life is meant to be. You're supposed to be too late for th- some things. Don't worry about it. <laughs> <laughs> well, he's like giving them this wise advice, like in the middle of this like frantic final act. Yeah. And there's so many interesting moments in this. I mean, in both versions, but like in the book specifically of like weirdly like weird wisdom. Yeah. That you're like, I mean, he's kind of right, he's I guess. Right. What a wise skeleton. <laughs> and, <laughs> and there's just like a lot of interesting I think it's like a lot of irony, maybe, in the story. Yeah. Like the town, for example. Yeah. The town is super prosperous. But, but they, they can't enjoy it. They can't be happy. Uh, King Haggard, like, has trapped every unicorn, like, ever. But he can't, like, in, he can't let himself enjoy them. No. Uh, And there's just, like, a lot of, like, both, like, big theme things and also like small moments like what I read. One too that Schmendrick is immortal but he like wants that to be over. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like he's, see- he's seeking to not be immortal but to be mortal again so yeah. he can have his magic. Exactly. So there's like a lot of interesting things that like as you read the story or mm-hmm. like for me at least were constantly like surprising to me and I was like never entirely sure where the story would go. Yeah. Which I really enjoyed about it. Mm-hmm. Uh so, yeah, I don't know. I just thought that I, I love this line and I think it kind of encapsulates a lot of the book. Yeah. In the movie and kind of like a lot of the themes of it. So. So they finally make it into the tunnels that lead to the Red Bull by walking through a clock. Yep. Um, and as they're going through the tunnels, Prince Lear is there, too. It's not explained how he got there. He's like, he's, he's like, like, I'm here. <laughs> I followed. I was just stalking Lady Amalthea like I do every like day. Like I do every night. Whatever. <laughs> and this is where Amalthea is like, I don't want to be a unicorn anymore. Like, I want to be a lady. I want to be with Prince Lear. Yeah. Which is sad. It is. Disappointing. And... And at this point, Molly's like, just let her be human. Now she's yeah. yelling at like Schmendrick. I know. To like, don't change her back after she yelled at him about changing her in the first I know. place. And luckily, and this is finally where like some of these ideas are challenged a little bit. Yeah. Prince Lear is like, no, he's like, you have to be changed back. It's what you he's like, I love you. I love you for who you are. That'll never change. I can't choose who I love, but you have to turn back into what you like are meant to be. Yeah, and he talks about it being part of the story. Yeah, this is kind of where a lot of like, oh, it's the story. It's the it's tale. Meant to be. You're the hero. And like this kind of idea gets brought up a lot at the end. Yeah, which I wasn't a huge fan of. I wasn't either. Kind it was of, like a simple explanation sometimes. Yeah, it really hits you over the head with it. Yeah. So... While they're arguing about this, the Red Bull shows up. Yeah. And Molly was just berating Schmendrick. <laughs> yeah. About the only reason he cares about anything going on is that he wants to be a more powerful magician. Yeah. And so she's just really like digging into him and shitting all over him. <laughs> and then the Red Bull shows up and she's like, oh, my God, Schmendrick, do anything. Save do her. something. Save us. Oh, my God. And the Red Bull is like, now he's like, OK, now I know she's a unicorn. <laughs> Even though she's a lady, she is a unicorn now. Of course, it doesn't say anything because it never says anything, which is why it's so creepy and unsettling. Yeah. So it starts attacking them through the tunnels and it starts... And at this moment, uh, Schmendrick changes the unicorn yeah. back into a unicorn. The yes. magic flows through him again. And at this point, he now has mastery over it. Like, the curse is broken. Yeah. 
And so now we're like right back where we to started, where we were before the castle, where yeah. the bull is just chasing the unicorn again, and the unicorn is just like, I don't know what to do, <laughs> and it's just like fleeing for her life. Yeah, and the red bull starts to like back her into the sea, mm-hmm. and we're led to believe that's where you know that's where all the other ones are, so she'll be soon trapped as well. And this is where Lear steps up. He's like, and Schmendra kind of says this to him. It's like. I can't save her. That's only what a hero can do. I'm like, okay, whatever. And, and Schmendrick's like, that sounds like me. And you mean Lear? I'm sorry. <laughs> Lear. Lear says that. <laughs> and at this point in the movie, the editing of the animation of this was so funny. Yeah. Where Lear jumps between the bull and the unicorn and the bull comes right up to him and we don't ever see him get hit. It just cuts to the ground and like him Lear, smashed on the ground, like belly flopping onto the <laughs> ground so awkwardly and clumsily. Yeah. It's it made me laugh really hard. <laughs> His sacrifice inspires the unicorn because she still remembers him and remembers her love for him. So she actually and kind of turns on the Red Bull and starts hurting him into the sea. And then he, I guess he's not used to being challenged because he just goes into the sea. Yeah. And then he like just walks away into the sea forever. I, I love the I did like the one line in the book where someone was asking why he did that. And Schmendrick says like the bull only knows to conquer things and yeah. not to actually fight. And when it like is confronted with an actual fight, it just w- intimidates. Yeah. It'll just like turn around because mm-hmm. it doesn't actually fight anything. So then all the unicorns are freed and we get this stream of like white unicorns galloping towards us. And as they like come up out of the ocean and over the castle, like the whole castle, like basically, you know, falls apart. Yeah. And I the the animation at this point was pretty cool. I like the effect of like the foaming waves turning into the unicorns. And yeah, and literally like a wave washing away. I think in, in the book there's a metaphor of a wave washing away a castle made out of sand on the beach. Yeah, and how, because it just like disappears. Yeah. Like it crumbles into like nothing. Yeah. And Haggard, who was on the top, just like falls, falls to his and death. he's like, ha ha ha. <laughs> <laughs> I knew it would end this way. Yeah, kind of like Mommy Fortuna. Yeah, very much like Mommy Fortuna. Both yeah. kind of like, Knowing and accepting the way their end is Both coming. seeming like they want to die a little bit. <laughs> maybe maybe him and Mommy Fortuna should have like got together. Been a match. Yeah. They maybe like could have at least been equally miserable. Yeah. Be interesting. <laughs> And also then it could have been a unicorn and a harpy like killing them both at the same time. Yeah. It'd be interesting. <laughs> uh so yeah, the unicorns are freed and their unicorn yeah. kind of disappears. In the book, there's one last moment where she's like, Okay, bye. Sup. Like <laughs> from the cliff and then runs away. Yeah. And it's interesting because in the book, there's kind of a bittersweet ending where Prince Lear, who is now King Lear, is like pissed about this. Yeah. And he's like, I'm going to go find the unicorn and like be with her. I'm just going to like stalk her all the time. For the rest of my life. And yeah. Schmendrick's like, no, you know, leave her alone. She's like a unicorn now. You can't love her. You can't be with her. She's not the same. And all he wants to do is to follow her. Like he claims like that would content him is just yeah. to follow in her footsteps. But Schmendrick is like, you're the king now. And what's interesting is as they follow the path of the unicorns that left. Yeah. They're seeing 
suddenly all this growth and renewal in the land, in the path of the unicorns. Yeah. And this land that has been like desolate and gray and terrible. So Schmendrick is kind of like, this is your kingdom now. You need to rule it. You need to kind of step up. And it's not always like really fun to be king. Like you have a lot of responsibilities, but you just kind of got to do it now. And Prince Lear is sort of like, ugh. Fine. <laughs> he's like super pouty. I know. He's and like upset. really pouty. He's for like it being the end of the book. <laughs> yeah, he's super like just bummed out about yeah. everything after this. Yeah. And there's a scene in the book where they're all asleep mm-hmm. and the unicorn like visits them all in Your their dream. dreams. And Schmendrick talks to the unicorn and we get his perspective. And then the following morning. He asks Molly, they all agree they saw her. And yeah. he asks Molly, what did she say to you? And she's like, I would never tell anyone. Mm-hmm. And then they ask King Lear now what happened with him. And he's like, she didn't say anything to me. She just like looked at me. Which is like. Weird. Very weird. Yeah. Like, I don't know if. I don't know. Maybe like, it was too painful for her. Maybe. But like, I wish that uh, Lear at least got some like. some closure with that yeah instead it only like hurt him more i know which is like very weird and upsetting it is and interestingly too the unicorn tells mendrick in the dream and also she tells um him this in the movie too that like she's like thank you for like helping me go on this journey because the unicorns are all freed but also you fucked up my life and i'll never forgive you for it (laughs) yeah she's like now that i know what it's like to be mortal i'm like terrified of dying yeah and i've never thought about that once in my whole life but now it's like a thing and now i like have regret in my life because i want to be a unicorn and still live my life but also part of me wishes that i had stayed a woman and like had married lear and now i just have to live with this she's like so thanks basically i have to go to therapy now (laughs) and it's all because of you i was fine before (laughs) and she's like okay back to my wood and then that's the end yeah, that's uh, we get like a goofy encounter with a maiden at the end. Yeah, which I know. Felt really weird. I enjoyed it only because it was like a little humor at the end again. Yeah. When everything else had been so somber. And yeah, it like, was kind of a downer. It was. It was a super downer at the end. So I think I, in the movie, too, it's a little like, oh, and then everyone just kind of goes home. Yeah, there's like a tinge of melancholy with Lear. Yeah. But he's like, eh, I'll get through it, it seems. Yeah. And... Yeah, and we get the great line from Molly where Schmendrick is like, come with me. And she's like, I will. <laughs> just like the way she says it. It's she so weird it, in the movie. Like so robotically and not in a human tone at all. Yeah. <laughs> so interestingly, there the author wrote like a short story that's supposed to be like a sequel to this. Really? Which has like an old King Lear in it, mm. which I think is dumb. <laughs> Given that we haven't read it. <laughs> I just like, come on, like, leave it alone. You know what I mean? Like, he wrote it like how many, like 30 or 40 years after writing the last year. Oh, before. really? Okay. So like, the I don't know. O- the only thing that's interesting to me about that is that Schmendrick gives the line about, because Molly's feels really bad for Lear. Yeah. And Schmendrick is like, well, he's a king now and all kings like have to have like these, a tragic backstory. These kind of tragic backstories. <laughs> so he's like, it'll just add to like his character as a king. Yeah. So maybe it's like given that perspective. And and you're I think you're led to question, like, well, is that worth it? Like if that is a trope of fairy tales, yeah. like it is kind of fucked up and maybe like isn't as 
cool as it maybe seems. Yeah. So I don't, I have no clue that this is news to me, but like, that's what I would be interested in mm-hmm. out of a short story is like. I think in the short story, like it ends with him like dying and the unicorn shows up to like bid him farewell, like as he dies. Oh, I thought she like brought him back to life again. And he's no. like, God damn it. <laughs> Let me die. <laughs> She's like, see ya. <laughs> So, yeah, that's the end. Yeah. And I mean, yeah, we said the movie's pretty much the same, except we get more music by America. Yes. At the end. <laughs> Definitely. Uh, so that leaves the age old question, Adina, of which is better. You know, this is actually kind of close for me because like we've talked about the movie kind of having like a little poor quality of animation, but it does have this like quality to it that's very iconic mm-hmm. and it's very I mean it's very 80s but there's something really interesting and memorable about it yeah and I can see why so many people especially watching it as a child like kind of hold it really fondly in their hearts so I do think that it's really interesting to look at it through that perspective and then with the book I have kind of some criticism in the way certain themes are explored mm-hmm. and I don't think the writer always accomplishes what he sets out to accomplish. Yeah. So I don't know. Do you think that's stronger in the book than the movie though? Or I feel like the movie is just like, this is what this is. Mm. You know, the book tries to do more and I like that it tries to do more, but it doesn't always land it. For yeah. Me. Yeah. I don't know. For me, the movie was like kind of unmemorable for me personally. Like really? I know as soon as we were done watching it and I was thinking back, I was like, what happened at this part? Like <laughs> I was trying to remember like the differences and like w- w- some of the things that occurred and I just like couldn't really. And yeah, I don't know. I, I felt like it tries to condense and pack in as much as the book has, but kind of unsuccessfully where yeah. it either like I, I felt like the movie also didn't execute the humor of the book as well. I agree. Like there were a lot of lines where they just weren't delivered with any kind of humor. Like at one point they're talking about this really powerful magician Mm -hmm. and Haggard describes him as the magician's magician. Yeah. And it's kind of like a play on like, Oh, he's the comedian's comedian or or whatever. (laughs) And I laughed so hard at that in the book. Yeah. Or another line with the witch creates the castle. And she says like, it was very ahead of its time. (laughs) Like a lot of humor like that, that like the lines will be in the movie. Yeah. But they're just not delivered in a way that like, that's is, true. is a good setup that I would really laugh at or even catch. Mm-hmm. So that's a little bit of a bummer that I don't think the humor always is there like it is in the book. Just ultimately for me, like I said earlier, the the book is just written in such a way that I found so interesting and I enjoyed reading so much that like even in the parts where it was boring and even though I do have the same issues that you have with like the character development and everything like, I kind of see that as, like, both the equal problems with the book and the movie. Like, That's true. They both do the same things. Yeah. And for me, like, I think the writing of the book is so much more interesting and engaging than, like, the quality of the film. That's true. So. And also, this book was written in 1968, so I think it's really impressive how smart and funny this book is. Yeah. Not that they didn't have funny books in that time, but it is refreshing to read a book from the 60s and not have to have a conversation about racism. <laughs> that is true. <laughs> Arguably unproblematic uh, given the time period. Yeah. So, 
Yeah, I mean, for me, it's definitely the book. Okay. I think I'll go with the book. It sounds like a softer. Yeah, it's a softer. I enjoyed the movie as well. Yeah. I thought the movie, I can, I could see why if you grew up with it, you might really still be attached to it. But yeah. I personally just didn't get the vibes from it. The book is definitely fun. So if you really like the movie and have a connection to it, I would suggest reading it because it is, it's the same beats. It's the same story, but the writing is a little elevated, I would say. Yeah, definitely. So it's a book from both of us. It's a book. Let's do lightning round. Lightning round. So uh, the first one I wanted to mention was Christopher Lee does the voice of King Haggard in the movie. Yes. And he is just such an icon. He is. Such a gem. Uh, I was reading that behind the scenes, like when he came to the recording uh, to record his lines, he brought his own copy of the book that was like all marked up (laughs) with like different things he wanted to make sure like were included or he wanted to get right. And apparently the author was also there for his recording. And he was like, like Christopher Lee was adamant that like, I want your sign off on this. Like, make sure it's okay because I want to do it justice. Oh, my gosh. And, like, if you want me to do anything again, I'll do it again. And he was just, like, so committed to, like, doing the role justice. That's amazing. And I I do think he is the most, the best of the voice cast. I agree. And what a joy to have experienced Christopher Lee. I know. While he was on this earth a little bit. I'm, I know him the most from Lord of the Rings, but yeah. um, really cool. He's fantastic. Yeah. So I just want to read this really funny <laughs> part of the book where Prince Lear is trying to impress the Lady Amalthea. So he decides to do all these hero things, and it's a bit of a longer passage, but it's worth it. So Prince Lear is talking to Molly, and he says... But what's left on earth I haven't tried. I have swum four rivers, each in full flood and none less than a mile wide. I have climbed seven mountains, never before climbed, slept three nights in the marsh of the hanged men, and walked alive out of that forest where the flowers burn your eyes and the nightingales sing poison. I have ended my betrothal betrothal to the princess I had agreed to marry, and if you don't think that was a heroic deed, you don't know her mother. I have vanquished exactly 15 black knights waiting by 15 fords in their black pavilions, challenging all who come to cross, and I've long since lost count of the witches in the thorny woods, the giants, the demons disguised as damsels, the glass hills, fatal riddles, and terrible tasks, the magic apples, rings, lamps, potions, swords, cloaks, the pain... (laughs) Oh, that's not the right page. (laughs) Boots, (laughs) neckties, and nightcaps. Not to mention the winged horses, the basilisk, and sea serpents, and all the rest of the livestock. (laughs) (laughs) Like every fairy tale trope ever. Just being like, I did it all, okay? (laughs) Why doesn't she love me? (laughs) Yeah, I loved that part was so great. Uh, The last thing I wanted to mention was the book does this really funny kind of weird thing where it kind of like randomly introduces like all these little um i don't know i i, I forget the anachronism anachronisms thanks thank you uh into the story where like when they arrive at like the robin hood campsite they offer uh schmendrick a taco yeah and at one point uh prince lear is sitting out with his like bride to be calling a unicorn and he's reading a magazine <laughs> and like the butterfly sings like modern songs yeah And there's so many like and they're very few and far between. It's not like it's not like a Shrek level of no like this is or a a Knight's Tale kind of thing where like there's constant modern day illusions. It's just like 
every once in a while there's something that's just like not quite right. That felt kind of Monty Python to me a little yeah. bit as well. Yeah. yeah, it did. It did. Like, especially the magazine part was super funny, I thought. Yeah. <laughs> but I just, it like was few and far between that like it always kind of caught me off guard, but was like very funny. Yeah, really good. So that's lightning round and that's the episode. Thank you all for listening. We were really excited to do this one yeah. and really glad we had the opportunity to do so. Again, thank you to Maggie for suggesting it, our lovely patron. If you would like to become a patron, just check us out on Patreon. And um, patrons of any level get access to our bonus episodes. We just did an amazing bonus episode on the It mini series from the 90s. So definitely check that out if you haven't already uh, become a patron over there. You can also find us on Facebook and on Instagram. We're also on Twitter. Yeah. Uh, on Twitter, we're covered two credits with the number two. Mm-hmm. Email us at coveredacreditspod at gmail.com. I'll spell the normal way. Yeah. And if you're listening on iTunes or Apple Podcasts, like giving us a, a rating, a high star rating, like does a huge amount for us to like be found and appear on other people's suggestions. Thank so. you everyone who's already done so. We really appreciate it. Yeah, we're currently at five stars with 41 reviews, which is awesome. Yes. And yeah, we just can't thank you enough for listening and we'll uh, see you next time. See you next time. Bye. Bye.